0: So, welcome to our final installment in the series we've called Navigating Faith, What We Believe and Why It Matters. And if you've been with us, you know that we've worked our way through the Nicene Creed. And I hope you've gotten a picture of what we believe, at least about the core issues. I also hope you've sensed that it matters a great deal. You know, all of us growing up tend to universalize our experience. Our family? Well, aren't all families like our family? Our childhood. Well, all childhoods must be like our childhood. Then over time, our experience has expanded and and we learn that not every family yells all the time or not every family makes conversation with random people whenever they're in public or not every father hugs his children. We learn over time that our experience, in fact, is very, very particular to us. And most of us realize how important it is to examine that experience. In fact, the more we understand our very particular experiences, the better we understand ourselves. Now, some of us honestly don't really do that work, but we overlook that examination to our own detriment. That's why most of us recognize the uniqueness of our experiences and we spend time exploring it. Okay, well, the same is true for our belief system. We universalize our beliefs as well. We kind of absorb a whole set of beliefs and assumptions from our environment, and then we live in light of those beliefs, right? For a while, we assume that's the only way to believe, and and those beliefs become our interpreter. We we see our choices and what happens to us through the lens of those beliefs. Now, certainly a few of us utterly reject those beliefs, but but still we live under their influence because our choices and what happens to us are interpreted against the grain of those beliefs. So, in effect, they still guide us. And yet, in spite of their significant effect on us, rarely do we really examine our beliefs. Now, I know examining our beliefs can be tedious. For some of us, it's just above dental surgery on the to-do list. But it's vitally important for a life well-lived. You know the adage, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the unexamined belief system will work against a life worth living. So what do I mean by the unexamined belief? Let me give an example. You know, I remember as a child singing the old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Some of you remember that one as well. The second part of the first verse is holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed trinity. That belief, spoken about and sung about throughout my childhood, it slowly oozed its way into my bone structure. And around that belief, a a whole matrix of assumptions and vague notions oozed into place as well. But do I really believe it? God in three persons, blessed trinity. Does it matter whether or not I believe it? What parts of that belief structure are actually true? What parts are helpful? What in the world does it mean? What what can I even know about any of that for certain? Here's the thing. Whether or not I can exactly nail down the answer, the specific answer to all those questions, it turns out, in my experience, that just asking the questions is a very helpful exercise. In other words, examining my beliefs. So that's what we've been trying to do over the past seven weeks. We've been trying to stir our minds and our hearts as we poke around with questions related to the most essential parts of our belief system. Who was Jesus? What did his life mean for us? What does all that say about God and who God is? Trinity meaning what? And the Holy Spirit say what? Uh, Over the course of five weeks, we talked about all of that which is covered in the first three-fourths of the Nicene Creed. And then in the last stanza, the creed does some cleanup work and it adds some belief statements that are somewhat surprising. We started looking at that last week and we noted with a little surprise that the authors included a we believe statement about the church. Now, that's somewhat surprising until you study the New Testament and realize this is what Jesus hoped and expected. That the church, the people of God, would be central to what the people of God believe. Well, today's first topic, frankly, is even more surprising. So we'll end our time of walking through the Nicene Creed today by looking at two final topics. Baptism and our eternity. Perhaps you can see why the creed would include our eternity in a list of core beliefs. But baptism? Why is that in there? So let's repeat the final stanza together again right now and and we'll focus today on the last two sentences we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come amen baptism now for some of us this is a perfect example of the unexamined beliefs we just talked about right if you grew up in a church that regularly said the Nicene Creed, then, then this part of the creed for you sounds something like this. We've heard one baptism for the goodness of in, But, but wait, what, what does that mean and why do we even say it? Well, first of all, the word baptism comes directly from the Greek word baptizo, As you may know, the Greek was the language of the New Testament and English translators of the New Testament didn't translate this word. They transliterated it. They brought baptizo into English. The word baptizo literally means to wash. That's why the baptismal ceremony for most Christians over the centuries has been a dunking ceremony. Check out these pictures. This is how we've done it over the years at Gateway. In pools in creeks, and lakes, and in our own tank at our own building. Now, this particular phrase from the Creed is lifted straight out of one of Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. At the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter had finished delivering a sermon and God had moved on the consciences of his listeners. So they asked him, what do we need to do? In other words, Peter, we believe you're right. You've shown us that Jesus is who you say he is, and, and we're in. What happens now? And Peter responded in verse 38. So look at this. Repent. And now we've, we, we've turned that word into a religious word, but the Greek word Peter used simply meant turn around, go a different direction. Uh, you've been living a self-ruled life. Now Now give your life over to God. You've been going in this direction. Now follow Jesus and go this way. So repent. And then he adds, And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So why did the authors of the Creed make baptism an essential part of our belief expression? Because Peter made it an essential part of our belief expression. So why did Peter make it an essential part of our belief expression? Because Jesus did. You see, at the the very end of his earthly presence, Jesus met with his disciples one final time and gave them critically important parting instructions. This was like the executive summary of what he wanted them to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hold on. You notice that he Teases out that making disciples business. And he does it this way baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus made the baptism act an essential part of our belief expression. And the book of Acts makes it clear that the first followers understood it this way. Over and over again, as people come to understand the truth about Jesus and about who God is, then their hearts were overwhelmed and they were baptized. So if you miss everything else about baptism, don't miss this. Baptism was the way they said, I'm in. At all costs, I want to follow Jesus and have my life be fully connected to God and to what he's doing. Baptism was how they said that. Baptism represented the surrender of the will to God's. Now, let's back up for a second for a bigger picture view. Remember, Jesus told us the greatest commandment was to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. And that commandment, coupled with the command to love our neighbor, is pretty much, Jesus said, the summary of everything God has to tell us. Okay, so being a Christian means, first of all, To have my heart changed by an encounter with God. This is why when people realize the truth about God, it's often an emotional experience. In other words, loving God with all their heart. Two, being a Christian means that I come to believe a, a set of ideas about who God is and how He operates. My thinking is formed around those ideas and they guide my interpretation of my life and my experience. I can say the Nicene Creed with agreement and conviction, in other words, loving God with all my mind. And third, being a Christian means that I step in every day and with all of my strength, and I try to live in a way that Jesus modeled for me. In other words, I love God with all of my strength. So that, that willful surrender, that, that stepping in, that begins with baptism. And in fact, that whole process of daily willful surrendering, the process of living a new life is symbolized in baptism. That's why when we baptize someone at Gateway, we take our wording directly from Romans 6. We say, buried with Christ in baptism, and then we dunk them. And then we say, raised to walk a new life. In one of our recent baptisms, I had someone ask me, you know, Pastor Ed, how long am I going to have to stay under the water? And very sensitively, I said, well, in your case, I'm afraid it's going to be a really long time. (laughs) Anyway, symbolically, we are washing away the old life through baptism. That life, the old life, has been repented from, remember? And symbolically, we are acknowledging the pledge that that person has made to love God with all their heart, mind, and strength. We're recognizing their willful surrender, and we are affirming that decision just like they did in the New Testament. In other words, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Let me explain that a little more. When we say one baptism, we're not trying to say there should be only one form of baptism or one kind of baptism. That's not the point. Think of baptism here as almost a synonym for faith statement. There are people all over the world who are declaring Jesus is Lord. They are making a statement of faith, and they are stepping into that statement with an act of their will. That's what we're affirming. That declaration, that's what baptism is. It's a declaration of our faith and we're unified in that. We are one in that declaration. We've all made that declaration. Think of it like a wedding. Just like a wedding is a declaration of love and a commitment to spend a life together, so baptism is a declaration of our faith and a commitment to live a life of connection and surrender to God by faith. And with this statement, we affirm one baptism, we are all affirming all of our acts of stepping in. We are affirming our unified, declared belief in what we've been discussing the past seven weeks. The point is not how or when you get wet. The point is stepping in. The point is exercising our will in the direction of surrender. That's what we're affirming. This is exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. In that passage, Uh, In 1 Peter 3, Peter was commenting on Noah and the ark, and he used that as an illustration. And then he says in verse 21, This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not about getting wet or getting washed, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. In other words, the literal act of baptism isn't the key, and that's not what we affirm. We affirm what baptism represents. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward conviction. It's an outward symbol of an inward move of God. What matters is the inward conviction, the inward move of God. That's what baptism stands for. That's what we affirm. We affirm one baptism, meaning we affirm the declaration of faith we've all made for the forgiveness of sins. So then, does baptism forgive sins? Is our forgiveness accomplished or fulfilled by baptism? Well, of course not. Look, we know from our own ample experience that forgiveness is an attitude shift. It's not a symbolic action, it's it's a heart change. It happens in the heart and mind of an offended person in a relationship. Taking a bath, regardless of how ceremonial it is, is no part of that. And just as we have to forgive others when they offend us, so God has to forgive us when we offend Him. It's an attitude shift by God and being baptized is not part of that. So then, let's go back and look again at the end of Peter's sermon and and tease out what he really meant. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins. So what did he mean by for the forgiveness of sins? Did he mean because this is how you will receive the forgiveness of sins? Well, not if anything else we've said is true. Not if we take any of the New Testament teaching about Jesus' death seriously. Then does he mean because this is how you complete the forgiveness of sins by being baptized? Well, again, not if anything else we said is true and not if we take any of the New Testament teaching about Jesus' death seriously. What he means is something like, because this is how you affirm your forgiveness, or this is how you declare your forgiveness. In other words, we affirm one baptism that explains that we have been forgiven. We affirm one universal, unified declaration of our faith that acknowledges to the world that we are forgiven. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. All right, that's a lot of words. So uh, what does all that mean for us? Well, that means at least three things for all of us. You may know of other things, but at least three things. First, it, it means that you and I need to decide whether or not we're in, whether or not we believe. We need to examine our own faith and own it or discard it. I've had many people over the years explain to me that they always believed. Oh, yeah? I say, yes, I grew up in a Christian home it, and I've always believed. Well, growing up in a Christian home makes you a Christian about as much as being in a garage makes you a car. Remember re- remember those unexamined beliefs we, we started the day talking about. Remember heart, mind, and strength all in. Here's the declaration that matters. I'm all in at all costs. I want to follow Jesus and have my life be fully connected to God and to what he's doing we have to decide. Second, we make that decision real and public by being baptized. In other words, we declare what we've decided. And then third, we live that decision out every day. All right, there are a couple of giant questions that I've left unanswered here. So if you go to the Q&A videos on mygateway.life this week, I'll, I'll talk more about how baptism relates to becoming a Christian, and I'll talk about how we should think about churches that baptize children versus churches that only baptize those who can make their own statement of faith. I especially hope you'll give that second one a listen. Let me say a quick word about that second issue before we leave it. I don't believe that a disagreement about baptizing infants or not baptizing infants threatens the essential unity of the body of Christ. I have a very good friend who's a Presbyterian pastor. He baptizes infants in his church. We do not at Gateway but I can stand right beside him in any worship service and affirm together with him one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Our disagreement does not threaten our unity. More about that on the video. Okay, full stop. Let's take a quick breath. And let's turn our attention to the second topic and the very end of the Nicene Creed. More precisely, the end of the Nicene Creed covers our ultimate end which, as it turns out, is actually endless. Here's the final affirmation. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. So let's do a real quick biblical survey of just three of the high points related to this final affirmation. In John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus told us that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Eternal life. Then later in John 5, verse 24, Jesus comforted us by saying this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. In other words, death is for us not a dead end, but a speed bump. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul constructed an elaborate argument designed again to comfort us. In verse 12, he began by saying, look, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? I mean, if it's widely said that Jesus came back from the dead. How can anyone argue that there's no coming back from the dead? Then Paul sketches an interesting analogy about Adam, as in the first man, Adam. He draws a parallel between the impact of Adam when he sent an ushered difficulty into the world on the one hand, and Jesus on the other. So listen to verses 20 through 22, again, from 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, if you'll permit me, I want to go in a slightly more personal direction with this concluding part of our time in the Nicene Creed. I've often confessed at Gateway that I'm a natural doubter. My faith is pretty hard won. The Holy Spirit has a constant job of reclaiming my mind and my heart. And the, the specific doctrine that is most susceptible to doubt in my mind is this one, the idea of eternity. When I'm at my worst, it, just, it all seems too good to be true. It seems too convenient for us, too well designed as a mechanism to alleviate our fears. It, it can make sense to me, honestly, that when the lights ultimately go out, then there's nothing more. For my wife, Diane, it's very different. She has this pretty constant sense that there's just got to be something more, trying to quote Diane. Something around the edges of our lives convinces her that this can't be all that there is. That doesn't even make sense to her. Diane happily and pretty easily looks forward to the resurrection and to the life in the world to come. But for those of you who are a little more like me, Let me offer some musings this morning that I hope will be helpful. There are really two things that act as rudders for me during the storms of doubt. Two things that keep me headed Godward. First is my deeply rooted belief in the resurrection of Jesus. I know that sounds odd having just confessed that I'm a natural doubter. But there are many rational, eyes wide open reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. You don't need to put your mind on the shelf to embrace this part of our belief, to embrace this part of the Nicene Creed. One, there are unprecedented amount, there's an unprecedented amount of witnesses for a first century incident. It's just unparalleled. Two, the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Women's testimonies weren't acceptable in a Jewish courtroom in the ancient Near East. No Jewish author would make up a supernatural story in which primary witnesses were women. Third, many of the first witnesses gave their lives testifying to the truth of this story. At some point, surely, someone would have said, wait, we made it up. And if they had, the chances of the story having survived the centuries is very, very slight. Four, it was unexpected. Death and resurrection were simply not part of their expectation for the Messiah. Why would it even occurred to them to make this up? Almost every other year around the time of Easter, I cover these reasons and many more in great detail at Gateway to remind us of the actual, reasonable believability of this story. I can believe it. Wait, I do believe it. And this is exactly why Paul approached the topic of the resurrection like he did. You know he urged us, if it's constantly talked about that Christ was raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? It just makes no logical sense. If Christ is raised from the dead, if that really happened, then the universe is not a closed system. The second thing that keeps me ruddered, I don't know if that's the correct terminology, but you know what I mean. Uh, the second thing that keeps me ruddered is my observations about my own life. I've had personal experiences that are difficult to explain apart from the intervention of God. and. I've seen my own life take shape in such a way, and I've seen my character develop in such a way that are difficult to explain apart from the intervention of God. Now, I'm a complete mess of a person, but it's not difficult at all for me to see that my life would have been much, much more of a mess had it not been for the intervention of the triune God. When we've got a week sometime, I'll tell you just a part of that. These two things help me stay ruddered. They help me weather doubt, and cling to my faith. One final musing about all this. Whenever we think about the topic of the afterlife, we need to recognize that God does not want to be a consolation prize. You know what I mean. I've occasionally heard the argument put this way. Well, why not believe? You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. If you're wrong, what does it matter? You will have lived a a less fearful and a more meaningful life and if there's nothing afterwards, that wouldn't have changed either way. But if you're right by believing, then you have eternity again. So why not just believe? But the thing is, God doesn't want to be your just-in-case ticket to heaven. He wants an active relationship with you. That's the point of the exercise. He wants an ongoing intimate connection with you. You cannot love him with all your heart nor with all your mind if they are compromised by doubt. And you will not love him with all your strength if your faith is a just-in-case variety. Remember the warmth of Jesus's words that we read just a minute ago from John 5? If we truly believe, we have crossed over, Jesus said. Past tense, crossed over from death to life. Perhaps that's why philosopher Dallas Willard describes the Christian life right now that we're living as, quote, the eternal kind of life. He means that in the right now, just in case faith will not do that. It will not give you the eternal kind of life right now. So time to be honest. If that's all you got, then reexamine and And allow God to turn what you got into real faith, into an eternal kind of life right now. Or if that can't happen, then let go if you must. Because just in case, faith will not do. Well, that's a lot to chew on, especially if you're fairly new to all of this. So let's take a moment right now to do some chewing. I want you to try to get into some position of reflection and worship right now if you can. If the kids are underfoot, do your best. Maybe close your eyes if you can or get on your knees or lean forward. And and let's just listen and allow the next couple of minutes to wash over us and let's chew. we believe in one god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the only son of god begotten from the father before all ages god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's what we believe and it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we believe in you. Jesus, we believe in you. Holy Spirit, we believe in you. We pray that or that, that that belief would fill our hearts and our minds and our will, that we would be able to live by faith and not by sight. We look to you in all things, and we surrender our will to yours. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.